Um, Today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to start to turn or tap your way there, we'll be kicking things off in verse 14, 15. The whole letter's crazy. Uh, as, As Lorenzo mentioned, we're going through Ephesians. We're calling this series Collective Again. Coming out of 2020 in this year of uh, disintegration and disconnection from not just one another, but even as a church. Uh, For the past year, collective, we have but haven't been collective church. We haven't truly fully been. And so as we emerge from our uh, year in in lockdown and this year in quarantine, this pandemic year, uh, we're allowing Ephesians to prompt us to ask some of these really crucial questions about who are we going to be as individuals on the other side of this? What is, what is the, if, if the pandemic will be, like we already refer to it as, you know, the before times and the after times, who am I going to be in the times after this? What kind of person for us as a community, what kind of church are we going to be? And as we begin to ask that question of who are we going to be as a church on the other side of 2020, the way that you and I answer that question is dependent on the way that you see the church. This thing that we call the church, not just collective, but the idea of a church. The way that you see that is going to fill in how you answer the question, what kind of a community are we gonna be on the other side of this thing? And so that's the question just to begin with is, is you know, maybe not everybody answered, but just to kind of hold, how would you, what is the church in your mind? What images or ideas or maybe even connections in your brain as the synapses are firing? You know, in your brain, does it connect more with kind of like a club or maybe something like a concert or an event, a college? There's all of these different ways that our imaginations help us fill in with something as amorphous as when we say the word church. Maybe a building is the first thing that comes to mind. Here's the steeple, open the doors, here's all the people. So I would just ask you, what would your answer be to what is the church? And not just what you would write on like a pop quiz if we were to give one out right now, but what is that lived out answer of what is the church? Because here's the thing, on paper, if you were to ask me about sugar and, and fat or even just dairy and like what it does to my body, I would clearly be able to write out all of the, 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 the benefits and not really the benefits, but the, the negatives, right? of sugar, milk, and all of this stuff together. However, every single time I walk by, you know, salt and straw, it's going to happen. I'm going to, right? So regardless of what I answer on paper, my very way of being says I'm actually quite okay with dairy, um, but I'm not. So I say that to say is that so often what we put on paper and what we vocally say about something and then how we actually live that out are miles of difference apart. I could say I'm lactose intolerant, but I am quite tolerant (laughs) of lactose. And so I just ask you what, not in your writing it down, but in your life, what is your answer for what is this thing, the church or these people? For many of us, we have been built to think of it as a building, but since day one, we've been saying that the church is not a place where, but a people who. But even beyond that, a people who what? For some of us, as we begin to think about what it means to be a part of a local church community, that that as I've had conversations with many of you, that we can distill it, or even what I'm prone to see it as, is we can distill it down to basically being a club for the religiously like-minded to associate and gather together at their leisure for their personal benefit. 
and this is like, if this is hitting you, this is just as convicting for me. <laughs> then oftentimes the way that we relate to the church is less like what we're gonna look at in a minute and more like a club for the religiously like-minded. We all kind of believe the same things. We associate, we get together on a semi-regular basis and we gather at my leisure, at kind of my pace and what I'm willing to give and ultimately at my benefit. And the challenge is that the culture of the church, collective again on the other side of this thing, is, has been, and will be shaped by the collective perception of the church. We are as we see ourselves. And so in this movement of being collective again, that is a collective work, a shared work that none of you or you watching online are unrelated or uninvolved or, or not part of this uh, systemic thing that grows out of our co corporate lives together. We are all shaping this community based off our vision of this thing. For those of you that have been here since day one and for those of you that today is your day one, we bring our perceptions of what this thing is and it gets shaped as all of those things come together. Now, some of you say, well, what about leadership? Isn't that like the pastor's job to like, you know, I'm the one that shapes the culture and like Lorenzo comes through with like the vision and we, this all comes together and we all just kind of hop on the train? No. Or maybe yes, but. <laughs> you see, leaders at some level can guide, but, but the larger community shapes I know and have conversations with pastor friends, and I've been a part of this over the years of ministry, where we go on this ministry, you know, like vision, you know, we're out in the desert, right? And like we're coming back with like this, you know, huge unveiled vision and mission of what the church is going to be. And we're communicating it over this series, something kind of like this. And then like over the course of the weeks, it's like pulpit all over the place and talked about from the leadership, but then it just, it doesn't go anywhere. Some of you work for companies like this. That there's like the incredible vision of like, we're in our community and we're like environmentally friendly. And they're like, you know, just burning styrofoam for the fun of it, like at staff parties. <laughs> or like, it's a family here. And you're like, everyone hates each other. Like, if, if that's what you mean by family, then yes. And so the whole point is that the leaders can guide, but the, the larger community ultimately shapes the culture that comes together for good or for bad, for healthy or for toxic. If we are united around some kind of bad or broken picture from the pastors, then, then that is bad. If we all are united around the wrong thing, that's bad. More often what happens in churches is not that we're united around the wrong thing, but that we're disunited around our varying views of what the church community should be and our expectations for one another. And so what we need as we move into our Collective Again series is to collectively see the church rightly. We need to have some kind of vision that we all hold and share together and, and, and hold one another to and move out into the future with. And so after the past last week with Paul, at the beginning of chapter one was in his maze of praise, as I've been referring to it after last week. Today, he's moving into the main body of the letter. And I believe that Paul is acutely aware of our need to see this church, this thing, us, for what we truly are in order for us to move forward. He sees it in the church in Ephesus, and I think he sees it for us, or at least the spirit writing to Paul to Ephesus sees it for us. So let's read Ephesians uh, chapter one, verses 15 through 23. Uh, you guys are gonna hear the y'all pronouns because Paul's using plural, and then we're gonna pray, and then we'll begin to kind of process through and see what Paul's getting at today. Let's read this together, where Paul writes in Ephesians one, beginning in verse 15. For this reason... 
Because I have heard of y'all's faith or all y'all's faith in the Lord Jesus and y'all's love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for y'all, remembering y'all in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give y'all the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that y'all may know together what is the hope to which he has called y'all, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to or for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who dwells, who fills all in all. And so, Father, we stand here listening in on Paul's not just letter, but prayer for the church in Ephesus. And we pray the same thing. God, a deep gratitude for the faith and love within this community and also a deep hope that you would unveil our eyes together to see what it means to be your people, to be your church. Help us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, instead of moving verse by verse like we normally do, I want to move your attention to verse 17 and kind of the center of the passage. Where Paul comes together with this central prayer, before he gets into the, what the whole letter is going to be about, his central prayer for the Ephesian church is what? He says it one thing three ways. He prays for the Spirit to give wisdom and revelation and the enlightenment of the eyes of your heart. So you see that's all kind of the same language that he's using. He's saying the same thing three ways. Wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment, for, for the way that Paul would put it. What we're going to summarize these three things in one thing as is he is praying for the church to have a collective revelation that God's spirit would give them a shared uh, epiphany, a shared enlightening, a shared unveiling, a shared unmasking, a shared unmasking. A few weeks ago, I was getting my hair cut for like the first time with an actual barber. Most of this year, as many of you have like watched my hair over this year, has been me like trying to figure out, not touching it for months. So I finally went to somebody who knew what they were doing. And so I'm sitting out with a barber and we're catching up and talking about you know, the year in pandemic and we're talking about life in Los Angeles. At that time, you know, the Mandalorian, we're just talking about that. That was most of, most of the time. But over the course of the conversation, it shifts into talking about like, you know, he's a barber, hair and like facial hair and stuff. And so we're just talking about hair. And then at one point in the conversation, he's wearing his mask and he pulls it down to reveal this like giant Tom Selleck style like mustache. And it, like, shocked me. And not in the sense of, like, you know, mask etiquette, one. Or what it's, it's I looked it up this week. There's actually a word for it. Uh, Pogonophobia, which is the fear of facial hair. Like, so it wasn't that. It wasn't like, oh, you know, hair. Uh, and it wasn't like, you know, mask. We were, everything was, was fine where I was, you know, comfortable. But, but the reality that my brain had, like, filled in a face for where that mask had been. And in this moment, it goes down, and my brain's just like, that's not what we were thinking. <laughs> and, like, I literally, like, I was like, uh, like, and I, like, was tripping over my words, over a mustache. And it was the weirdest thing. 
And, and I, I just, I use all this to say, is like, that, that is kind of what Paul's praying for, is, is for us that many of us have this kind of masked version of the church, this kind of like perception that we kind of fill in the like blank space of like what's there. And Paul prays that the spirit, God's spirit himself might come and kind of pull the mask down as it were and allow us to see ourselves for who we are. And that's going to be a shocking reality. The church isn't mustached, I don't think. Uh, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. So like, I don't, maybe, I don't know. But the reality is, is that, that he says, this is what's going on. That, that there is a reality in which we see the church in a veiled, in a masked, in a unrevealed state for most of our lives. And we fill in the blanks with what we think the church is. Paul's fundamental prayer before he gets into anything else in Ephesians is y'all need God's spirit to open your eyes to see the church for what it really is. He's praying for this uh, revelation. The language, the word is, is, if you've been with us for a while, the apocalypse word of that idea of something that's being unveiled to its true heavenly reality. This is what happened with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark's gospel. If you remember back in November, if you were with us, this is what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus where Jesus appears to him in all of his like heavenly splendor and Paul's whole life changes because of it. Paul is praying for this sort of a, a moment, something to happen, this epiphany moment within the church where it clicks and they begin to see themselves for who they really are. Because that collective, again, mission that he is after, that he's calling the church to, that I believe he's calling us to through the Spirit, requires us to have that unified revelation of what the church is. And so Paul prays, for three things, three things that we may be missing, that may be needing to get unmasked in the way that we perceive and see the church. You'll see in verse 18 that he says that it's our collective hope. In verse 18, again, our collective inheritance. And then all the way from 19 to 23, the, 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 the reality of our collective head is kind of what we'll, we'll fill that in as, which that's language from last week, but we'll fill that in again. Paul, big prayer is for revelation and unmasking, specifically around hope, inheritance, and headship, head language that he uses. So let's first dive into this collective revelation of hope, the first thing that Paul prays for the church. Paul prays for them to have more than hope as we fill it in, which is like, I hope it doesn't, you know, whatever tomorrow, like an optimism or like a wish. Hope for Paul within the biblical landscape is a confidence that one's circumstances, one's life, the state of this world, at the end of the day, don't determine the story our story or the story of this world. That in fact, that hope biblically is based out of the resurrection and because of Jesus' resurrection, the age to come, this resurrected and renewed heavens and earth, that if that is the end of the story that has been filled in and promised through Jesus' resurrection here in space and time, then this shapes my perception of my present. This vision for the future shapes my perception of my presence, present. But notice that so often when we use hope language that we shift into me talking about your circumstances. And so why you in the midst of health, are you in the midst of not having work, are you in the midst of that you've got hope, that this is not the end of your story, right? That there's, there is, but notice Paul's language here once again, let's not shortcut with individualism. Y'all's collective hope, plural. This hope to which he's called y'all, that our hope is not an individual but a collective calling. 
that that resurrected, the new heavens, new earth, that age to come vision that Paul has for where the world is going is not that we all individually are driving our own cars and we've got the same location locked into our GPS. We are all in the same car together. Driving into this hope alongside one another. And so some of you have been beating your head against the wall with some kind of like a, a feeling of this hopeless Christianity where it's aimless and it feels endless and you're like, I'm just kind of holding on to Jesus because that's just kind of what I've always done or I don't feel like I... Paul says the context of hope experienced, of hope that hearing that calling over your life is experienced within and gained and found within y'all, within the corporate communal body, within the church. And so what this means then is as much as some of you need to hear today in the midst of the hopelessness that you're feeling right now, that in Christ, there is, that is not the determinative factor of your story. Likewise, Paul wants us to start looking at one another's circumstances and seeing whereas they are bound to feel hopelessness that we see over them and with them, we're in the same car together. This is the, the marker of, of, of why we would encourage one another and we remind one another, why we need one another, why we pray for one another, why we bear one, another, one another's burdens, as Paul says, is we're in the same car, we're in the same calling, we've got the same hope, and we're holding one another to it. The imagery that comes to mind, and I, there's like this weird trope, sorry, side thing, there's this weird trope where like pastor guys like just love to talk about Lord of the Rings in like every single sermon. I'm normally not one of those guys. Okay, I get, Isaac wishes I was. <laughs> and, uh, and so, but this is the only one that came to mind, is like the most emotional part of any of Lord of the Rings, if you ask me, other than the Ents, because they're just awesome, uh, is at the end of Return, uh, where like Frodo is like down and out, trying to get, you know, destroy the ring, Mordor, all the lava and the trolls and the Middle Earth stuff. And he's like exhausted and he can't take another step. And Frodo, you know, he can't do it. And, you know, there's Sam, why is KMG? And he's just like, you know, I can't carry this burden, but I can carry you. And he, like, throws him over his shoulder. And, like, all of us are just, like, weeping. At least I, that's just me. Okay, maybe not. I, the whole point of what Paul's getting at and talking about our collective hope is not this individual, I can make it through my life. I've got a greater hope. He says it's an address to y'all, that the community of the church is ones where we look at each other and we lock arms with one another. And as one another begin to trip and fall under the circumstances that we go through of sickness or loss or death or grief, that we're holding one another up and we're pulling each other along. Because again, it's not that we're just going to the same place and like getting in our car, like putting the GPS, like see you there. And on Sundays every now and then, you know, off on the gas. It's that we're, we see ourselves as, as bound up with one another in this thing. And so the whole thing, though, is that that hope, I mean, this is the thing. We could all just be delusional, though, right? Like new heavens and new earth, and we like skip down like the yellow brick road together. Hope without basis is foolishness, even if it's shared within a community. And so Paul moves us along. What's the basis for that hope? And then he moves in verse 18, that you may know the what. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? His second revelation prayer is not that you should know the hope that you're called to, but the inheritance that you have. And actually, excuse me, I said that wrong. That's the whole point of my notes. Paul doesn't say that. Do you see this? Slow down, Ryan, slow down too. Paul does not say that he, we, we'd know our inheritance. 
He says that we would know that God's inheritance is us. Read back over that. Notice that you might know what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, in the holy ones. So Paul prays for this community not to have an an unveiling of how much they don't love God and really need to get it together. His prayer is what? That y'all may understand and see that you are God's treasured possession. That you are God's inheritance, his his thing that he loves and, 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 and treasures and values that he's committed to. See, Paul doesn't pray that we would know our inheritance in God, and so he'd slap us on the wrist and like go, you know, don't sin this week, you know, or you know, you'll miss out on the inheritance. He prays that the church might know that they are God's inheritance, that their identity would become that of a people who understand the depth of love and commitment that God has for them, and then out of that go into lives of righteousness and justice and holiness. And again. Again, this, the revelation of this is right now, I just, I know in the way that you've been hearing that, because it's the way that I hear it, is when we talk about the beloved, oh my gosh, me. I am that beloved, and that God, and, and this, is, this is not untrue, that this is true of me. That I would know, that Paul's praying that I would know how much God loves me, and that he sees me and you as his beloved and treasured inheritance. But again, Paul uses plural pronouns. Not just that I would see that true about me, but see that true about we. That as I look into the eyes of each and every one of you, as you look around the room, those of you that are, that are tuning in, as we look and, and see one another, that person, in the midst of driving me absolutely crazy, is God's treasured possession. His inheritance, the thing that he's got coming to him and he cannot wait. And like as much as I want to send them to him earlier, like that's... That this, this drastically shapes the way that I see this person. And so the whole point is that then this founds a community. Paul's praying for a people who have been unveiled to God's love and valued for the church, and then in doing so, that might shape a community and a people that would shape our love and shape our commitment and shape our prioritization for, this, for us, for one another not just as a community, but even within the relationship of our gatherings, within our discipleship groups, within our neighborhood dinners, that we would see the value of these people, this community, this is God's inheritance. We talk about stewardship language, and I'm part of this thing. So that's awesome for me, but also, oh my goodness, how am I gonna prioritize and treat and commit myself to them? And this also means that we are a community then which reminds one another of your shared statuses as an inheritance of God, as a beloved possession of God. In the same way, when you feel hopeless, at other times there's gonna be points within the community where we feel loveless. Like we feel like unlovable. We feel like there's no way that God is committed to me. And the whole point of our shared inheritance and the fact that we've linked arms in that collective hope is we you know, pull one another along. Maybe that's a little too forceful. We remind one another. No, you, this is, this is who Paul identifies you as. This is that you are beloved and chosen, like all of those blessings from last week, language. This is who you are. We become a community who reminds one another of our place as the shared possession, the treasured inheritance of God himself. But the question is, okay, if, that's the, if the fact that we are God's inheritance is the basis for our hope, then how do we know that God loves us, is committed to us, that we're actually his inheritance, that he gives a rip about? Keep reading to the third revelation prayer. 
Now, this is one big giant kind of thing that Paul does, but I want to bring our attention to the end in verse 22 where it comes to a head, literally, where Paul says the basis for our hope, the basis of the fact that we are God's inheritance is, what does he say? That he gave Christ as head over all things to or for the church which is Christ's body, the fullness of, of, of Christ who you know, fills all in all. You see, Paul is developing that our, our hope, our status as God's inheritance is grounded in our in Christness, that we are the body of the collective head, if you remember back to last week, of Jesus Christ, this collective head who forms this new humanity, this new body, this new family, that we belong and are a part of him, and that's the basis for our hope and for our inheritance. And I love that Paul begins to now, he's mixing all these metaphors of body and the, the fillness of, and he talk, he's using this language of like mutual indwelling, that not only are we in Christ, but Christ is within us. Paul's bringing this all together. But what does it mean actually that we are the body of Christ? Because that just brings like weird imagery of like, you know, you know, robots of like Voltron, you know, where like Jesus is the head and then like, it's like, you know, I'm, you know, the pinky finger or something. What's Paul getting at? It brings us back to verse 19, where I think that's where he sets out and then what he builds to the climax of us being the body of Christ. In verse 19, he says that we may know the revelation, we may have revealed, unveiled to us what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What it means to be the body of Christ, what it means to be within the body of our collective head is that God's immeasurable power is at work within this community, is toward us or in us. And so in the same way that, you know, maybe without, don't think about it too long, but a decapitated body, (laughs) hey, happy Sunday, (laughs) is powerless, right? There's no movement. There's no life. The whole point is he's saying you guys are now connected to Jesus, And so flowing from Jesus is not only all of Jesus' victory and his blessing last week, but all of his power. Now, power immediately brings up like lots of really um, like thoughts that we have. I mean, we're like Americans. We started this whole thing because we don't like power, but then we made it off the fight for power. Anyway, we don't like power. We are increasingly suspicious of power or like outright antagonistic towards it. This idea of of power that someone would have a position or privilege or the resources to to enforce their will on this world and on another. Power leaves a bad taste in our mouth. Even more within the church where this language of power gets co-opted to basically be that like in Christ you are a powerful person. And so what that means is like either like we're gonna go out there and we're gonna get as many votes as we need to get so we can like basically make you know, this nation look like the church, which is something that's never been promised or called for. Or at the same hand, that it's like, you know, and this is far more prevalent in LA, is not necessarily the political thing, but this like, that in Christ you're a powerful person. And so like influence and success and prestige and fame and, and image and all, that this is what is all about, that Jesus wants to like win the world through these little like powerful Christians who have influence and fame. And this is like why every single time some celebrity like, has a lyric about Jesus. Like the whole church is like, this is it. Justin Bieber's singing about Jesus now. So he's coming back soon. It's worth thinking about the whole mission through a a powerful vision of of how power works. Right? Or the same is true where in, um, 
maybe more kind of health and wealth, kind of prosperity visions, where that the power of Jesus is about you having all of these resources and fame and a life that's like so awesome that people look at and go, I want to follow Jesus now because that guy drives this car. And I, I, this is the language that happens within the church when we talk about power. So on one hand, you have that, and you have like an outside perspective of that we all have of like power that we're so like skeptical of it to begin with. And I don't think that the Ephesian church was that different from us because Paul is so quick to qualify what sort of power we have. He doesn't just say the immeasurable greatness and then we're like, okay, we get to fill that in for ourselves. What does he say in verse 19? The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe and then according to, or it can be translated, the same as the working of his great might. Oh, so it's the same as the power that he worked. Where? Verse 20, that he worked in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and when he seated him at the right hand, you know, in all of his power, we'll get into all that in a second. So the whole point is, for us to be part of the body of Christ, we do power fundamentally different than the rest of the world. That the world has ways of doing power that, that the church is not like, we don't borrow that and we just walk within that. We have a fundamentally different, a Jesus-shaped way of doing power here. That's not just power that's Jesus-given as we're attached to the head, but like it's, it's Jesus-shaped. It's in line with how Jesus' power works. And so all of this is this power that now is flowing through us. And he says that it's the same as when he raised and seated Christ. So let's take a few seconds on this. The raised, and then we'll talk about the seated uh, at the right hand. The raised in Christ is what he is saying is now because we're connected to Jesus, this church, what it means to be a part of this community as we're going back to the collective again, is we got resurrection power at work within this community. Now, what that means is that not only connects us to our collective hope and our collective inheritance of the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth, because in Jesus' resurrection, as we are now connected to him through faith, so true will the resurrection be for us. But next week in chapter two, what Paul's gonna get at is resurrection power doesn't just mean when you die. Resurrection power means actually right here, right now. That those of us who live spiritually dead lives, he like talks about it like the night of the living dead. It's like these, like these spiritual zombie lives that we live. Resurrection power is at work within this community. Taking what was formerly dead and bringing it to life. But more than that, Paul in saying raised him from the dead, we have to ask, well, how did he get dead? Paul's summarizing the whole work of Jesus in and around that Passover week. He's not just talking about the resurrection. He's also talking about the cross. And Paul is saying, look at that, Easter weekend, Good Friday, Jesus' death, and resurrection Sunday, this is what the power of God looks like. It looks like resurrection, but it also looks like a crucified king. Power in the church looks like service. It actually looks like weakness. It actually looks like taking the hit for another. It actually looks like loving your enemies. That's the church's superpower, is enemy love, is actually being stomped out by the empire and actually finding that because of the resurrection, we're able to do it with boldness and confidence anyway. This has been the story of the church. And the reality is, is that far too often we have fallen asleep to the power that we have and we have gone after the worldly portrait of power and we've tried to have Jesus baptize what we want along the way. And the church is a place that does power completely different. It looks like service. It looks like enemy love. It looks like giving up oneself for the sake of another. It looks like taking the hit for another. It looks like letting the, the weight and brokenness of this world actually crush us. 
So whatever like onward Christian soldier vision you have of like this is what it means to be, Paul says the power that we have is shaped by a crucified and resurrected Savior. But Paul also says, he doesn't just say that he raised and seated him. He also talks about the power that is in us and through us is this uh, when he was seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. And he goes on. Okay, heavenly places. (laughs) What are you talking about, Paul? And then he doesn't help. He says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So this was one of those ones where I had like a whole page of notes um, on trying to like, Set this up. Paul is developing here in these couple of words here around powers and authority and dominion in the heavenly realms, this theme that he's going to unpack over the course of the whole letter. So I'm gonna do my best not to just like go on a whole rant right now to try to summarize the whole letter. I'm just gonna introduce us to a reality right now. From Paul's perspective, the human story, and because of that, the the story and plot of the church as these kind of parallel stories of the earthly and the heavenly realm. Now, for some of us, we're raised like Western 21st century. You're like, if I can't see it, touch it, taste it, or smell it, it doesn't exist, right? And that's cool. Uh, you, you are the anomaly in history and globally right now, if that's how we think. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying maybe a little humility on that, right? Maybe just to entertain the possibility that most of the humans throughout most of the world, you know, for most of history, might be seeing something that we're not. Even more than that, 100 years ago, if you would have told, you know, most scientists and, and um not physicians, what's a person in physics? Physicists, good Lord. <laughs> Most physicists, that there, were more, that there were more dimensions beyond the four that we inhabit and live in, like you would be like a nut job. And now, even though we can't see, touch, it's not perceptible, we can't engage or, or work with it, the math shows there are multiple, I hope this isn't breaking anyone's mind, there are multiple dimensions beyond the four that we inhabit and work in. And within the biblical Plotline, the biblical story, wants us just to entertain that maybe there's more going on within this world than we perceive at all times. And the reality of what we're going to refer to just as the powers to summarize all of this. Now, we're going to get into this more next week about how the powers are at work within this world. We're going to get into how we fight the powers. It has far less to do with like head spinning and like pea soup, right? Like exorcist kind of stuff. It has far more to do with humans being separated and disunited from one another. It has far more to do with, with the, those moments when I enact and live out something that's me but not me. And then I look back and I'm like, that's not the me that I want to be. This, I'm getting confused over that. But there, that there's a tension that happens within, and even more than that, what we're going to find is that for Paul, when we talk, our language around systemic injustice, for Paul is that that's the powers at work. The powers exploiting the weaknesses and brokenness of humanity to multiply it on a, on a large scale. That this is where we're going. I don't, we're not gonna, I, I was going to go, I just, this is wetting your appetite, right? Everybody's gonna, this is, Paul's whole point, though, to bring this together here, is that the church is an empowered community whose power is shaped by Jesus and, and flows from Jesus. And it is not just a power that we enact on shaping the world as we want, but rather it is one of self-service and, self, and, and enemy love. And that as we do that, that's actually our spiritual warfare, that's actually us pushing back against the, the, the grip of the powers, as Paul is going to say next week. And so the church is the empowered body of Christ that's knit together in our confident hope as God's beloved inheritance. It's power, inheritance, and hope all together. Now, Paul is not talking about some super church writing to the Ephesian church. 
this language of like the power of God against like these like, you know, otherworldly powers and, and this collective inheritance and this hope that y'all have. This, Paul's not writing to some super church. It's like, you know, thousands of people who are like all like every service is everyone speaking in tongues and they're like, you know, slaying out demons. And he's not talking about some gathering or an event, this extravagant transcendent gatherings that happen every single week. Paul is using all of this language about the very power of God at work in the world the body of Jesus, to talk about an ordinary and messy church in the city of Ephesus. This diverse little community of Jew and Gentile, slave and free, men and women, who are living their lives alongside one another, they're committed to one another, they are um, building their lives alongside one another through their weekly gathering as they study the scriptures and pray as they take from the Lord's table, as they serve one another, and as they together find tangible ways of caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the refugee, the vulnerable, and the afflicted in their city. Paul's vision of the power of God at work in the world is this tiny little church in this giant big city of Ephesus. And, and even then, it's not an ideal community. It's not that they've got that down and they're doing it great. The whole point of the letter is they've got some issues that Paul has to deal with. Based off next, uh, next chapter, what we're gonna find is they've got divides that are happening on racial lines within the community. People that aren't seeing eye to eye specifically around ethnicity. And it's causing a division within the church. Later on, he's gonna talk about people that are being spiritually passive in the church. They're kind of just offloading all the responsibility of the church to others. And oh, they'll take care of it. He talks about immaturity in the church. There's sexual sin within the church. There's people forsaking, gathering on a regular basis within the church. There's disunity because of all of this happening. This is the church that Paul says, you guys are the power of God in the world. It's not some ideal community. It's one that's a lot like ours. But because Paul sees the church for what they are, even if they don't, this actually leads us back to the beginning in verses 15 and 16, where Paul can't stop praying for them. Specifically, he can't stop thanking God for them, specifically for their faith and their love. If you're anything like me, I have a perfectionist uh, personality. Enneagram one, for those of you, if you're like a Christian now, that's like our, our version of the horoscope. <laughs> no? Okay. Um, <laughs> Some of you guys, you don't agree with me. They're like, I love the Enneagram. And some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. And save yourself. Uh, that, that, anyway, I, I have a really strong perf perfectionist uh, personality. And I can get so, like, frustrated and, like, resilient, like, whittled down at the lack. And the, the, lack, of the lack of it all working together in my own life. I can do that with, as I look at others, I'm just like, man, if they just did what I'm doing, things would work out. But then I look at myself and I'm like, no, they wouldn't. And then even within like, within our church that I'm just like, oh my gosh, there is so far for us to go. Like what in the world are we doing? And Paul, who I believe is, he's a, re a recovered uh, perfectionist. He still is gonna call us to that ideal, but he begins with this priority of gratitude and thanksgiving. So if you guys got faith, in our Lord Jesus Christ, and you have love towards one another, it's gonna be okay. You guys got all you need. Because a community that's built itself on faith in the Lord Jesus and faithfulness and allegiance to him as king in a world where everybody else is giving their allegiance to the powers, 
You guys are going to be okay. If you guys have a community where you guys are genuinely living in love, not just an emotion that you fall into or out of, whether romantically or within the church community, but a commitment to pursue the benefit of the other, even at great cost to myself, we're going to be okay. Faith and love are the practical outworkings of our hope, of what it means to be the treasured inheritance. And they are the very essence of our power, a power that is defined by faith to our crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus and a love, a love that lays down its life for the sake of another. As we move into being collective again in the kind of community we're gonna be on the other side of COVID, the question before you is, what do you see the church as? What do you perceive this little gathering of saints, you know, in person or online? What is this thing? Not just the gathering, but actually the relationships, the, the tethers that happen between these relationships. As you see this thing, that, that is how you, it will be shaped. And the reality is, is that even, even if you're a part of this thing and you're attending, but you're kind of like, okay, the, there's kind of like this, like, you know, there's Christianity, there's like Jesus, there's like church, and then there's like, you know, church 2.0. You know, there's like the, the evolved, you know, church plus, you know, the subscription model. And, uh, and I'm just, you know, I'm just kind of doing the free thing right now, right? And there's some, some of you don't identify as a Christian. You are here and welcome. we'll give you guys the free service to check things out as long as you want. For those of you that identify as a Christian, the... the this is what we are called to. And, and any level in which I'm just kind of doing like a kind of, you know, checking things out and, and at my leisure and at my level of investment, it, it actually takes away from the rest of us. When we show up and we bring all that we have and we commit ourselves to one another in hope, linking arms, reminding one another of our inheritance and acting like that, that's where the power begins to move within a city. And that's what's happened throughout church history is when these tiny little local communities get this down and following Jesus in faith and love, it turns cities over. It turns empires over. But what's so funny is that when churches try to turn empires over, they actually eat themselves alive in the process. We have two ways before us. And my prayer is that today as we move into a time of response, that something may click and something may happen where there is a unified collective revelation. Let's pray.